0: G'day, and welcome back to the Australian Histories podcast. This episode we'll talk about Mawson after his return from Antarctica, and the legacy of the Australasian Antarctic expedition in general. We'll touch on other notable activities that were going on around the same time, and then consider Australia's ongoing interest in Antarctica let me remind you, as always, about the episode reference lists, images, links and other material that I'll place on the website at australianhistoriespodcast.com.au That's histories, spelt I-E-S. This is the fifth and final episode following Mawson and the Australasian Antarctic Expedition, so if this is the first time you've come across the podcast, I would suggest that you return to the beginning of this series, at least. To episode twenty one to get the backstory that leads us here today. There are a couple of standalone stories before that and a very in depth series on Ned Kelly if that takes your fancy too. But recalling last episode, Mawson had finally arrived back in Adelaide, having spent an unexpected extra year away after his team's disastrous trek out east so we'll begin today by talking about his reception and the legacy of the AAE for Australia. While his expedition was over, he would spend the rest of his life writing up and communicating their experiences, continuing the research begun in Antarctica, and contributing with his fellow expeditioners valuable scientific papers on numerous related topics. Mawson maintained an ongoing relationship with the continent and further developed many of the scientific and environmental conservation programs that continue in some form to the present day. Good on you, Mawson! So let's return to the Aurora, arriving back in Adelaide in February 1914. Mawson disembarked the Aurora and made his way to the South Australian Hotel, where Paquita was waiting to greet him. And mercifully, they had the day together before he had to begin the round of public receptions. It took them both no time at all to confirm that they were still very much committed to each other, and that their wedding should go ahead as soon as possible. The Del Pratt family had moved to Melbourne in Mawson's absence, and so the wedding took place there on March 31st at the Holy Trinity Church in Balaclava. Davis, who had captained the three AAE Aurora journeys, and accompanied Mawson on Shackleton's Nimrod expedition earlier, was Mawson's best man at the wedding. After the happy event, the couple left on the honeymoon cruising to the United Kingdom but their honeymoon would necessarily need to be part working holiday so that Mawson could meet many of the expedition commitments which were now already a year overdue, and so they were accompanied on the trip by some of the other team members from the AAE. Costs for their second year in Antarctica and the additional retrieval boat trip had increased his outstanding debts, so as soon as he reached Australia, Mawson had begun negotiations to sell the boat and equipment to try and recover his financial position. There wasn't much of a market at that time, and in the end, he sold the Aurora to his old friend Shackleton at what was really a discounted price, leaving him still with a £3,700 debt. In England, Mawson met with many sponsors adventurers and other interested parties, addressing the obligations associated with the expedition. He would also meet with the Ninnis family there, and that would have been a harrowing meeting, one assumes. During his forced second winter in Antarctica, Mawson had been working on his book, The Home of the Blizzard, and with Maclean editing and contributions from some of the others, he had to have the finished draft ready for publication in England. Apparently Hurley had not provided all the picture films and adequate data required before he had dashed off to his next adventure. Mawson wrote to him, stating, The book will suffer considerably by your rushing away before the work was adequately arranged for. It has annoyed me extremely. But they were in dire need of the income to service the outstanding debts so publication proceeded without the full set of images. Hurley had also failed to get the moving film ready, which would have been a huge draw card for the many lectures and talks Mawson had to provide to his sponsors and for marketing the new book. So Mawson undertook to edit the film himself. As things turned out, The book was not published until early 1915, and by then war was on everyone's mind, so it did not become the instant bestseller that he'd hoped for, and the sales failed to help much with the debts. The Mawsons were welcomed in England as minor celebrities, really, in that distracted atmosphere, but they were guests of honour at a reception at the Australian High Commission in London, a luncheon at the British Empire Club, gave talks at various society and educational institutions, and they did get an invitation to the palace in May, with the king most interested in Mawson's adventures. Where Mawson had the opportunity, his talks included showing Hurley's images or the film, and he reported on the scientific highlights and the experience in general. On one occasion, not only was Shackleton in the audience, but Ninnis's father the Arctic explorer too. And of course they took time to visit with Kathleen Scott while in England. Mawson was actually knighted for his services to science on June 29th, just one day after the Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated in Europe, and we know that kicked off a bit of trouble there so any small glow of attention that Mawson might have expected was about to be refocused towards war preparations in Europe and the Commonwealth. However, the Mawsons did head across to Europe after leaving England to visit Paquita's Dutch family, and then to condole with the Mertz family in Basel, Switzerland, before turning for home. Mawson returned to his teaching in Adelaide University, but was kept very busy hosting public lectures around the country and raising funds to chip away at the AAE debt. At the end of the year, he took his lecture tour to America via New Zealand and England. Paquita was pregnant during this period, so she left him to the US commitments alone. While he was in the US, he met with the survivor of a well-known and horrific Arctic expedition, Adolphus Greeley. In 1881, Greeley had been given command of the Lady Franklin Bay expedition to collect astronomical and polar magnetic data around the Arctic for the U.S. government and also to search for clues on the disappearance of the USS Jeannette, lost two years prior. Greeley was without previous Arctic experience, but his expedition started out well. His exploration team did manage to set a new northern record, and this was before anyone had reached the pole, of course. But when his party decided to retreat south, to Cape Sabine, they found neither their ships nor food or equipment depots there, as they'd expected, and so they were forced to winter there with no supplies. In June of 1884, when a rescue boat finally arrived, Nineteen of Greeley's twenty-five-man crew had perished, mostly from starvation, drowning or hypothermia. And the six survivors were in such bad shape, some blind or with hands and feet missing due to frostbite injuries, that one died on the journey home. The previously buried crewmen were disinterred and repatriated to America. When examinations were made in the U.S., They found that the flesh had been cut from the bones of at least some of the bodies, suggesting deliberate cannibalism, and this sensational news was reported in the papers of the time. Greeley, though, denied any knowledge of such behaviour. Well, it's hard to judge what would become acceptable when you're in such dire circumstances, I suppose. Mawson himself was questioned about whether he had eaten Mertz to aid his own survival, and rumours like that had been whispered previously, so there was actually substantial interest in what the two had discussed at their meeting. <laughs> their conversation probably related to Greeley's excellent and interesting scientific theories regarding glaciers, which as notes have only fairly recently been proven. Mawson was ever the scientific nerd, and glacier actions were his thing. A recent book suggesting Mawson deliberately starved Mertz, calculating he would die first so he could then eat him, seems ludicrous to me. Now, I'm not saying it's impossible, once Mertz was dead, that the thought did not cross Mawson's mind. We can never know how desperate a man might become, but I can't entertain the idea that he deliberately starved him for the purpose. Best kill him before he got thin, at least. A story on P.M., the ABC radio program, filed by Felicity Ogilvie in 2009, provided some interesting information. It was reported that a French glaciologist, Benoit Legrisi, had calculated where Mertz's body should actually be in 2009. Being buried on a glacier, his body would be shifting along with that glacier. They had the bearing Mawson recorded on the day Mertz was buried and the ice flow data gathered over the intervening years, so that movement over time could be calculated. The glacier generally moved about 200 metres per year until it speeds up over the water to about a 1,000 metres a year. The suggestion was that Mertz's body would, in 2009, be embedded about 400 metres deep and about halfway along the glacier, moving towards the sea, where eventually it would end up. The story indicated, though, that there was no intention to try and recover the body, but rather just map its progress. That story did refuel the speculation about whether Mertz had been eaten, though. Returning our focus to Australia, Paquita gave birth to their daughter, Patricia, on April 1915, and later they would have a second daughter, Jessica. When Mawson returned from his lecture tour, they all settled back in Adelaide, where he once again resumed work at his university. Adelaide University was certainly very accommodating with his frequent leave, and he made sure they got credit for his published work and when he represented them at various conferences and scientific bodies. One meeting he attended was to consider the creation of a new government science bureau, later to become our much-loved and respected CSIRO the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation. And he was instrumental in setting up some other very valuable organisations which focused more finely on the Antarctic. Before we look at those, I'd like to backpedal a little in time again and just have a look at what else was going on in Antarctica while Mawson was recovering in the Cape Denison hut Now this is not really Australian history, so I'm certainly not going into any great detail in retelling these stories, but there is a connection to Mawson, and they certainly are riveting stories, so we'll just dash through the potted history here. As I mentioned in previous episodes, around the same time as Mawson's foray, Scott was making another push for the pole. Indeed, Scott was involved in an actual race to the pole, as he had discovered that the Norwegian Arctic explorer... Roald Amundsen, having just recently been beaten to the North Pole himself by an American, had made a hasty and rather stealthy change of plans, looking to make his name at the South Pole instead. Scott had failed to reach the South Pole in his first attempt, 1901-04, during his Discovery expedition. Then Shackleton made an attempt during his Nimrod expedition, 1907-09, and though he had passed Scott's furthest point south, he also failed, having to turn back only about 180 kilometres short of the pole. After Shackleton's return to England, Scott had stated, Every expedition that went out was a pioneer for another expedition. And so they were. Scott's first attempt had facilitated Shackleton's pushing further inland. Now Scott was keen to try again to best Shackleton, indeed to best all of them, to bag the pole for the glory of the British, saying at a function, All I have to do now is thank Mr Shackleton for so nobly showing the way. Right, well, that's easy enough then. Raise the money and head off. And if you recall, he was in the process of doing that when Mawson made his way to his office to ask, unsuccessfully as it turned out, if he could tag along and do some science. Scott invited him to join them for the pole attempt, but Mawson declined, organising his own Australasian-Antarctic expedition instead. So Amundsen was initially making plans for a tilt at the North Pole, but in April of 1909, the American explorer Robert Perry claimed that prize, though there was some controversy over the validity of his claim later. Amundsen, having done all the prep for a polar assault, was still pretty keen to be a famous first and began quietly considering a change of hemisphere. By mid-year 1910, as Mawson was madly raising funds for his scientific expedition, both Scott in London and Amundsen in Oslo were making final preparations for their polar journeys. Amundsen cast off, and... Only when he had stopped at the port in Madeira, Portugal, in September, did he tell his crew of the change of plans. As you can imagine, his crew were pretty angry with him, but in the end they all did agree to stay with him for the new goal in the south. So it was only then that Amundsen made his plans known to Scott. He sent a rather concise telegram, saying, Beg leave to inform you, Fram preceding Antarctic, Amundsen, unquote. Hmm. so he's a man of few words, it seems. That telegram would surely have put the wind up in the Scott camp. But actually, in a similar display of leader's arrogance, like Amundsen, Scott kept the news from his own crew for quite some time, lest it affect their morale. It was clearly a paternalistic era, And I suppose he was a military man, too. Everything was on a need-to-know basis. We can note, though, that Scott did share the news with his crew, before casting off, at least. So, on December 30th, 1910, Scott's Terra Nova expedition arrived in Antarctica and set up at Cape Evans on Ross Island. Aware that man-hauling would be difficult for the distance required to reach the pole, Scott had considered various modes of transport. Reginald Skelton, who'd been his engineer on the earlier expedition, had developed the use of continuous tracks, those caterpillar tracks, for application on the snow surfaces, and so Scott brought with him a powerful tracked vehicle to use for heavy hauling. Now, while this prototype did not perform as well as they'd hoped on this expedition, we do see those fantastic drives still in use in Antarctica today, or indeed on any ski field in the country, so well done, Skelly. Scott felt that horses would be suitable for the middle part of the trek, as they'd seemed useful to Shackleton, and then they would rely on the dreaded man-hauling for the last section. He didn't mind using the horses for food when they could go no further, but he strongly rejected the idea of using the dogs like that. His support teams would use dogs for hauling on the trips in and back, laying the supplies for the main team, but he would not take them to the pole himself. Unfortunately, the ponies he'd brought with him were not the kind that would perform well in that environment, and this caused much difficulty and angst amongst his team members, particularly Oates, the experienced cavalryman, who knew they were not up to the task, but had the responsibility for the welfare of the poor horses anyway. Within weeks of Scott's arrival, on January 14, 1911, the Norwegian boat, the Fram, made it to Antarctica and Amundsen set up his base, Framheim, that's home of the Fram. Amundsen had landed much further east, indeed at the Bay of Wales, on the great ice barrier that Shackleton on his Nimrod expedition had rejected as too dangerous as a base site. Amundsen had no such concerns. Framheim was set up there on the ice sheet, putting them nearly 100 kilometres closer to the pole than Scott as their starting point. On November first, 1911, Scott's expeditioners all set out, hauling extra supplies with the motor tractor and dog teams to cache provisions along the way for the Polar Party's return journey. As they reached their provision depot point, they unpacked the supplies and then headed back to base, the others continuing forward, then peeling off until there remained just the small final group of men advancing southward. That was Scott, Wilson, Bowers, Oates and Evans, and they would make the final dash for the pole. Later, at the beginning of February, those then back at the hut were to venture out again, with new supplies, to meet the returning pole team, by then expected to be exhausted, with the dog teams and additional supplies, to see them all safely returned to the hut. What no one knew was that on October 19th, 1911, a few weeks ahead of Scott, Amundsen's polar team had already set off. Expert at skiing and managing the dog teams, just five men took four sledges hauled by 52 dogs. To augment their food supplies, they did plan to use some of the dogs as a source of fresh meat as they progressed. Amundsen's team were also kitted out in the Inuit-style furred clothing and boots, rather than the heavier woolen clothing of Scott's team, and they appear to have experienced much more comfortable and speedy travel. Amundsen, despite some delays and bad weather, made it to the pole in 57 days on the 14th of December, with 16 dogs still healthy and productive for the return trip. Interestingly, though Amundsen's team may have eaten dog meat to supplement their rations, they appear to have avoided any vitamin A poisoning. So either they did not eat the livers, or they did not eat them in any amounts large enough to be toxic. Delighted to have won the race, Amundsen named their South Pole camp Polheim, home at the Pole, and he set up a small tent to support their flag and house their documentation, Recording their feet for posterity, and leaving a letter for Scott's team. They took photos there and recorded their geographical readings before hightailing it back to Framheim on the coast. They arrived back on the 25th of January 1912 with eleven surviving dogs and soon sailed for Hobart. Arriving on the 7th of March 1912, Amundsen immediately sent a telegram to the King of Norway to advise of their triumph, and the following day he held a press conference on the steps of the Hobart Post Office to announce his success to the world. The world now knew who had won the polar race, but had not yet heard how Scott had taken the news. All, at this time, including Amundsen, were unaware of the status of Scott's attempt. Not having the luxury of the formidable dog teams and the practised Nordic skiing skills, Poor old Scott reached the Pole on January 17th, a gruelling 78 days after setting out, to discover Amundsen had preceded them by five weeks. After all that planning, and the appalling effort and discomfort experienced in the preceding weeks, we can anticipate Scott's visceral disappointment. And he did record in his diary, quote, The worst has happened. All the daydreams must go. Great God, this is an awful place, and terrible enough for us to have labored to it without the reward of priority." Truly devastated, they turned to begin the thirteen hundred kilometer return journey on the nineteenth of January. On the fourth of February, Evans had some kind of fall, and Scott recorded it left him dull and incapable. By the 7th, they'd travelled about a third of the way back, but Evans was clearly deteriorating from what must have been a brain injury. On the 17th, after another fall, Evans died there, at the base of Beardmore Glacier. The remaining four men still had more than 600 kilometres to travel, across the Ross Ice Shelf. The weather deteriorated, but more alarmingly, the return supply depots appeared to be missing much of the required fuel for cooking. This was a devastating oversight. They began experiencing hunger and exhaustion, but they pushed themselves on, making for the point where they would meet the incoming support crews. Scott's diary for February 27, 1912, noted... We are naturally always discussing the possibility of meeting dogs, where and when, etc. It is a critical position, unquote. So they were quite desperate to see the teams approaching, to assist them with that final third return leg home. Unfortunately, there seems to have been a substantial breakdown in both communication and discipline amongst the team members at the base, along with some unfortunate accidents and poor decisions and in the end, Scott's party was left without the support they expected on their return journey. No one brought the dog teams in at the expected point and time to meet them, or at any other site as they continued on. On March 2nd, Oates began to suffer from the effects of frostbite, and the party's progress slowed further. By the 10th, the temperature had dropped unexpectedly to below minus 40 degrees, In the following days, despairing of any support team arriving, and perhaps now reflecting on their likely fate, they began writing messages for the sponsors and their loved ones. All were now suffering from cold-related injuries and incapacities, from hunger and probably malnutrition-related health issues too. Scott wondered whether he had overshot the meeting point with the hut parties or had in fact been abandoned by the expected dog teams. He recorded in his diary, though, that no blame should be slated to the hut teams should they not survive out there. By the 16th, though, Oates had reached his limit and was clearly reconciled to his fate. Scott recorded his now famous and determined words, I am just going outside and maybe some time. And with that, Oates left the tent, quite obviously choosing to meet his end there. The three now remaining managed to travel another 32 kilometres, but setting up camp there on March 19th, still 11 kilometres short of a major food depot, a nine-day blizzard would see them use the last of their rations, and left them only to write their farewell letters. Scott's correspondence included a defence of the expedition, and attributed the party's failure to bad weather and bad luck, adding, We took risks, we knew we took them. Things have come out against us, and therefore we have no cause for complaint, but bow to the will of Providence, determined still to do our best to the last. Had we lived, I should have had a tale to tell of the hardihood, endurance, and courage of my companions, which would have stirred the heart of every Englishman. These rough notes and our dead bodies must tell the tale, but surely, surely, a great, rich country like ours will see that those who are dependent on us are properly provided for Unquote. march twenty ninth marked Scott's last entry. Wilson and Bowers were presumed to have died first, with Scott succumbing either that day or the next. Their bodies and final records were not discovered until the following November. A cairn of snow was built over their final campsite and marked by a roughly fashioned cross made of skis. Back at Hut Point, a memorial stating To strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield was also erected at Observation Hill. Their loss was only confirmed to the outside world when the Terra Nova reached New Zealand on 10th of February 1913 with the news. The Wikipedia article on Amundsen states Amundsen's expedition benefited from his careful preparation, good equipment, appropriate clothing, a simple primary task and understanding of dogs and their handling and the effective use of skis. In contrast to the misfortunes of Scott's team, Amundsen's trek proved relatively smooth and uneventful, unquote. And I'd have to agree with that statement, really. A lot of things went wrong for Scott, but a lot could have been avoided with better planning, communication and transport options. Mawson was still in Antarctica recovering when they heard, via the radio, the news of Scott's death. He noted in his diaries, quote, I know what this means, as I have been so near to it myself recently, unquote. And of course he sent his heartfelt condolences to Lady Scott as soon as he could. He and Paquita did visit her in 1914 on their trip to England. After Scott's request that those left behind be taken care of, an appeal set up following the tragedy collected over £75,000 in subscriptions. That's four and a half million British pounds today. Scott of course is today remembered fondly by the British and generally considered one of their great intrepid explorers and a hero of a bygone age. Before I return to wrap up Mawson's story, let me recount just one last trek that truly illustrates the fortitude of the people exploring in that era. Again, I'm not going to do my usual level of research on this non-Australian story, but it's so amazing, I'll just briefly recount the well-known outline. With the North and South Poles now claimed, Ernest Shackleton returned to Antarctica in 1914 to undertake the Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition, 1914-17, attempting the first land crossing of the Antarctic continent. Shackleton... In the Endurance would lead a party into the continent via the Weddell Sea, south of the Falkland Islands in the Atlantic, landing a shore party near Vassal Bay. He and five others would then trek via the South Pole across to the Ross Sea, south of New Zealand. Anais McIntosh, in the Aurora, Mawson's old ship, would make landfall from the Ross Sea side, and the land teams there would take supply depots deep inland to facilitate Shackleton's team completing the crossing, as they would be unable to carry the volume of provisions they'd need to take with them from the other side. But before Shackleton could even make landfall at Vassal Bay, the Endurance became trapped in the pack ice and drifted northward throughout the Antarctic winter of 1915. Mawson's photographer, Frank Hurley had accompanied Shackleton on this expedition, which is why he was not assisting Mawson in displaying his AAU pictures in London, no doubt, and Hurley took many spectacular images documenting this expedition. I'll put some links to Hurley's work on the website. They really are truly interesting and evocative pictures, and I'm sure you'll be familiar with some of them. Once it was clear the Endurance was stuck fast in the ice, some supplies And the dogs were taken off the boat and housed in ice kennels, or dog loos as they called them, so that the ship's interior could more comfortably house the men. A wireless apparatus was rigged up, but their location was too remote to receive or transmit any signals. Over time, the ice began to crush the hull, and the 28 men had to retrieve the rest of the supplies from the boat and set up camp on the unstable ice. Eventually, the ship sunk, and with the loss of the ship, their transcontinental plans were abandoned. The focus instead shifted to survival. After some time camped on the ice pack, the floe suddenly split. The men now found themselves on a small triangular raft of ice. Shackleton then readied the three lifeboats for the party's enforced departure, with Elephant Island being the closest landfall likely. It was remote, uninhabited and rarely visited by whalers or any other ships, but it was solid and would provide a safe place for the less hardy to wait while Shackleton tried to find help. So they made the difficult and dangerous trip through the ice floes to Elephant Island in three small lifeboats, carrying as much of the supplies as they dared without risking the boats. Settling the majority of the crew on the island, Shackleton and five others then took one of the small rowboats, 1,300 kilometers, to reach South Georgia, where whaling stations with radios might provide help. In those waters, everyone knew it was a gamble, but there were few other options. And amazingly, after a grueling sea journey, they made it to South Georgia. They could only reach land, though, on the opposite side of the island to the whaling station so the four strongest men made a final push on foot in freezing temperatures over exposed and rough terrain to raise the alarm at the whaling station and to send men back to retrieve the two waiting at the boat landing site. It was quite the amazing and heroic endurance rescue effort, and those involved should rightly be praised for their bravery and the Herculean physical efforts. It took Shackleton four attempts before he was able to return to Elephant Island to rescue the party stranded there, after three months' absence, but he was able to return all 28 men to civilization without loss of life. His determination and leadership in this feat of survival is now the stuff of legend. His family motto, Through Endurance We Conquer, was definitely in evidence there. He may not have been the most reliable man in business, but he certainly undertook the hard yards in relation to his obligations to his men under these circumstances. The English geologist and Antarctic expeditioner Raymond Priestley, who was part of Shackleton's Nimrod expedition and Scott's fateful Terra Nova venture, and who went on to co-found the Scott Polar Research Institute at the University of Cambridge, said of these men, quote, for scientific discovery, give me Scott. Though I beg to differ here, I think actually the evidence for scientific endeavor points to Mawson being the star, really. For speed and efficiency of travel, give me Amundsen. But when disaster strikes and all hope is gone, get down on your knees and pray for Shackleton. <laughs> Shackleton would have been happy with that, I'm sure. And fair enough, too. In 2002, Kenneth Branagh starred in a two-part television movie called Shackleton, and for fans of that adventure genre, I would recommend it. It won several awards, so it's worth a look at by that measure at least, and it's a great story. Sadly, though, the team on the opposite side of Antarctica, unaware of Shackleton's problems, and all pretty inexperienced, did not fare quite so well. Having no idea at the loss of the Endurance, They continued on with their plans, but their ship, Mawson's old Aurora, was blown from her moorings during a gale, and her rudder damaged, and was then unable to return, leaving the shore party marooned without all the proper supplies and equipment. They had to resupply and re-equip themselves from the leftovers from earlier expeditions, including Scott's abandoned base at Cape Evans. Nevertheless, the depots for the expected crossing team were laid. Sadly though, one of the expeditioners collapsed and died while undertaking his tasks, and two more were trapped out in a blizzard and never seen again before this group was finally rescued. Of course, the isolated trans-Antarctic crossing teams had last contact with civilization in 1914, and they discovered on their rescue that the world was now at war. When Shackleton himself finally arrived in England on ninth of May 1917, his return was barely noticed. His expedition had failed to accomplish the objective of crossing the continent, but Shackleton's actions on this trip did later become recognised as an epic feat of heroic endurance. Shackleton's Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition marked the end of the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. The world's focus now was on war and afterwards to recovery, rather than on exploration for a while. It would be more than 40 years later that the first crossing of Antarctica was achieved by the Commonwealth Trans-Antarctic Expedition, 1955-58. Taking 98 days to cross, they were assisted by the then more reliable mechanical hauling equipment. This expedition was led by British explorer Vivian Fuchs from the Weddell Sea starting point and the support team from the Ross Sea end was led by New Zealand's beloved Edmund Hillary. Just a couple of years earlier, Hillary, with Nepalese Sherpa mountaineer Tenzing Norgay, had been the first men to reach the summit of Mount Everest. These blokes, eh? They just cannot settle in with a jigsaw and a good scotch in front of the fire, can they? They've always got to be pushing the limits, beating this record, forging that new thing. (laughs) In reflecting on that era, though, Mawson's survival and efforts to make it back to the hut during his ordeal certainly marked him as impressive, both physically and mentally. And Shackleton's courage and endurance over the year they were battling the elements does, I think, earn him high praise. Mawson returned to Adelaide University, as I mentioned earlier, to continue teaching and research, making major contributions over his lifetime to his field. Later, in 1959, the university set up the Mawson Institute for Antarctic Research, and its library holds much of his archive, including photographs and other objects of importance. Mawson was instrumental in the formation of, or served in, a number of valuable scientific bodies over his career, including, but not limited to, what would also become the CSIRO, the Australian Academy of Science, the Australian and New Zealand Association for the Advancement of Science, and the Australian Antarctic Executive Planning Committee. Though Mawson was initially surveying Antarctica for the interest of whalers, sealers and penguin resource exploiters during the AAE, he later became a supporter of strict regulation of the whaling industry and was instrumental in setting up conservation sites, such as having Macquarie Island declared a sanctuary. It has since been placed on the World Heritage List in 1997. After a conference in 1926, Mawson was invited to lead the British, Australian and New Zealand Antarctic Research Expedition of 1929-30 and 3031. This expedition operated from the ship Discovery and did not set up a land base or overwinter. But the expedition made extensive geologic, biological, marine and oceanographic surveys along a 2,500-kilometre stretch of the Antarctic coast. And they used a gypsy-moth aircraft to survey further inland, mapping many areas for the first time. Frank Hurley again took photographs for the Banzair expedition. The data gathered contributed to ongoing research and publications in the 13-volume Banzair Scientific Reports over the following 50 years. The data also supported the Australian Antarctic Territory Acceptance Act of 1933, ratified in 1936, which later established the current Australian Antarctic Territory claim. After World War II, Mawson continued to promote the Australian National Antarctic Research Expeditions, and they set up their first scientific research station on Heard Island in 1947 with another built the following year on Macquarie Island. The Mawson Research Station, named in his honour, was established on the continent in 1954, Davis in 1957, and Casey in 1969. Aenea was later renamed the Australian Antarctic Division. Mawson's work helped in the establishment of the Antarctic Treaty which is the most successful world treaty of all time, discussed in an earlier episode. It came into force in 1961 and currently has 54 signatories, setting aside Antarctica as a scientific and environmental preserve, and bans military activity on the continent. Later, the Australian Prime Minister Bob Hawke would lobby further to protect the unique standing of the International Antarctic Preservation Agreements. Treaty nations agreed to cease any mineral extraction in Antarctica, and in 1991 signed a comprehensive agreement, the Madrid Protocol, which came into force in 1998, and banned mining in Antarctica indefinitely. So Antarctica is a small patch of our world that will hopefully remain unexploited for profit. Mawson finally retired from the Adelaide University in 1952, aged 70, and he died at home only six years later from a stroke. He was honoured with a Commonwealth State funeral and is buried at St Jude's Church in Brighton, Adelaide, South Australia. Even after all those years, Mawson had not completed the many papers derived from his AAE expeditions, and fortunately his daughter Patricia continued the editing work finally publishing the last in 1975. The Australian Dictionary of Biography quotes the following assessment from J. Gordon Haynes in 1928 as standing the test of time. Sir Douglas Mawson's expedition, judged by the magnitude both of its scale and of its achievements, was the greatest and most consummate expedition that ever sailed for Antarctica. The expeditions of Scott and Shackleton were great, and Amundsen's venture was the finest polar reconnaissance ever made, but each of these must yield the premier position, when fairly compared with Mawson's magnificently conceived and executed scheme of exploration. The biography further noted, while he was one of the most outstanding explorers of the 20th century, he was first and foremost a scientist, dedicated to the advancement of his subject." And for me... The bravado of all these men was impressive, but I think it was Mawson's focus on gathering scientific information which contributed to the wealth of knowledge for all, and is continued by others today, that makes our Mawson an exceptional and exemplar Antarctic explorer of the heroic age. Antarctica is now a much more crowded place, and while the treaties set up have served us pretty well, International tensions about activities there occasionally flare up, or we hear of some territorial spat, but the bodies involved work hard to maintain goodwill and keep the focus on science in the fragile environment. The biggest threats to Antarctica and its once pristine environments were probably the impact of the scientific stations themselves, and now tourism which brings with it much more potential for contamination of the fragile and once isolated environment and disruption to the sea creatures and wildlife. And of course the biggie is climate change, which is already causing measurable, accelerated changes to the glaciers, water and ice flows and higher average temperatures in general. Addressing the warming must be done on a global scale to reduce impacts locally, so we can only hope that this is taken seriously by every country, and that we act urgently on the sound advice of the experts, who've been measuring these changes and drawing our attention to it over decades. An Antarctic-style, worldwide treaty on global action would be ideal. Since the adoption of protocols on environmental protections, The research stations are now required to address quality and action standards, so we can expect more care is taken than in the early days. And we noted in an earlier episode that they are doing things like installing sustainable power generation to reduce their high carbon footprints, and that all waste must be removed from the continent, for example and strict protocols for visitors setting foot on the Territory are also required to reduce the potential for seeds and other contaminants being inadvertently introduced. Currently, our ageing icebreaker, the Aurora Australis, apparently nicknamed the Orange Ruffy, having made its maiden voyage to Antarctica in 1990, is still providing valiant service at the time of writing, but will be replaced by a new purpose-built vessel the RSV Noyena in 2020. The new ship has been given the Aboriginal name Noyena, a name that reflects the Southern Indigenous terms for describing the auroras and reminds us of the long connection that Tasmanian Aboriginal people have with the evocative southern lights. A wealth of information about Antarctica and our scientific activities there is available from the Australian Antarctic Division's web pages, and I'll place a link in the reference list. There is some fascinating information there on the history of each station, links to live webcams for a visual peek, and much, much more for those Antarctica fans amongst you. Another interesting thing to note is that while you may be able to see some Google Street View images of some of the stations in Antarctica, getting quality satellite images and other Google Earth or Google Map information is more difficult, as I found out when I was trying to get distance calculations from one site to another. Some historical names are not marked on the modern images, and Lean reminds us Comparatively few images are available to the public mainly because of the absence of high-resolution satellites passing over the poles, and the difficulty with rendering global digital images accurately the further away from the equator, apparently. Along with the fantastic Mawson's Hut's museum that I've been banging on about, Hobart's Royal Tasmanian Botanical Gardens Also boasts the world's only sub Antarctic plant house, displaying Antarctic plants in a climate controlled room. I missed that on my last visit, but I plan to rug up and get in there next time for sure. Mawson's AAE base hut at Cape Denison survives, though, as you might imagine, the harsh environment has taken a toll over the years. The Mawson's Huts Foundation was established in 1997 to conserve the fragile and historic buildings there, and there have been a number of management plans enacted over the intervening years. The Mawson's Huts Foundation, who also operate that replica hut museum in Hobart, has on their website a great deal of information about the site's conservation in Antarctica, and would be a great place to start if you desire more information about that. As always, I'll link to it from my webpage. So, now we've finished our reflection on Douglas Mawson. It was an unexpectedly long series. I thought maybe two episodes. (laughs) It just goes to show what happens when you start reading. You end up going down all those little rabbit holes as interesting things come to light. I've learned a lot, and I think I now have the famous explorer quotes straight in my head (laughs) at last. Next month, we're going to change focus completely and we'll be looking at an element of our convict past. I hope to do this one in one episode, though I know there are plenty of tangents to come back to, plenty of interesting stories to look at related to the convicts. So, as Fry would say, I can't promise to try, but I will try to try. Hey, and thanks also to those on Twitter and Facebook who responded to the recent polls. It was interesting to see that most folks who responded either look at the episode web pages often or occasionally. So I guess I'll continue placing the references and links there. I'm glad you find them helpful. I would be happy to email out to you the links as the episodes get released so that you have that coming into you conveniently rather than having to make your way to the web page. So if you'd like that to happen, there is a link on the web page to a form you can use to subscribe to the new email list, and we'll see how that goes for a while. Links to the Australian Histories podcast Twitter and Facebook feeds are also available from the webpage, if you're interested in communication that way as well, along with the standard direct email address there. And of course, options for supporting the podcast in a more material way too, if you'd care to consider that. I'm sure you know where the web page is, but just in case, australianhistoriespodcast.com.au Finally, I want to recommend another podcast that you might like to check out this month. I love No Such Thing as a Fish. No Such Thing as a Fish is a comedy podcast brought to you by the makers of QI. If you know and love that show, this podcast is for you. Each week, the team discusses the favourite bizarre facts that they've unearthed in the last seven days. It's highly entertaining, and I'm going to say often enlightening too. They're such a great team, and they work so well together to present a very entertaining potty. I'll place a link to No Such Thing As A Fish on my website. So, I'll be signing off now, and I may be some (laughs) time. Well, a few weeks anyway. Sadly, no pineapple cocktail to reward my work this month. Oh well. I will try and have the next new topic ready for the last Friday of next month, though. So have a happy and safe few weeks. I'll talk to you then. Cheers.